Could you turn with me to 1 John 4? We'll look at one section there. And also we're going to look at some verses in 1 John 5. But let me ask a question, because there's a couple stories I want to tell tonight that I think I've told here before. How many of you have never heard me here at Hume before? Well, okay, then I don't feel bad about telling these stories. And for those of you that have heard them, just bear with me, okay? Um, In 1 John 4, I want us to look at verses 18 and 19, and chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. And our topic this evening... We're talking about the God of love, the God of love who pursues Sunday morning, the God of love who nurtures, we talked about Sunday night, and then Monday, it was the God who loves us unconditionally, and then the God who gives us victory. But tonight, the God who assures us, he assures us. Okay, so first off, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And then chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. In a little bit, uh, uh, back in the sound booth, in a little bit, did did you, I want to cue up that 1 Peter 2.24. It won't be till a little bit later in the message. Is that okay? Okay, I should have talked with him about that before. Please forgive me. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We worship you for the way you have guided us throughout our life and that you've brought us to this moment. I pray, Father, that we would hear from you in this moment the things that you would have for us, and I think we would be, I pray that we would be deeply assured by the love that you have given us in your Son. And I pray, Father, for those that know you, they would embrace you all the more because of it, and for those that are here that might not know you, I pray that you would reach to their heart in the power of your Holy Spirit and bring them to the place where they would receive what you have so lavished upon us. Again, Father, I ask, knowing my own limitation, that you would take the crumbs that are offered, that your Holy Spirit would multiply them and bless them and distribute them so that each person here would hear something that he or she would feel was meant for them individually. And they would gain in that the affirmation of your great love that you gave them what they needed to hear tonight. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. It's interesting to me that when John writes, he's usually pretty deliberate about saying what he wants his readers to get out of the passages. For example, in John's gospel, he ends it in John chapter 20 by saying, many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose for John's gospel. Matter of fact, you've got a methodology for interpreting that whole book just from that thing that John said. You can go through every event and every account in the book of John and look for two things. What does it tell me about Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? What does it say about the deity of Christ and his being the promised Messiah who came? And what does it tell me about the quality of life that is ours when we believe in him? You could study the whole book that way. I remember years ago I pastored a church and I pastored, I preached through the whole book over maybe a year, year and a half, and that was our outline through the book. And it was demonstrated in various ways. But in 1 John, he does something similar. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to come to the hour of your death wondering, waiting, not sure. I can't tell you the number of times I've been at people's bedsides at the time they were either dying or preparing to die. And, and, and I, I take their hands in mine. And I say to them, you know, you're going to go see Jesus pretty soon. Will you do me a favor? And they look at me like I'm nuts. What can I do? Look, I got tubes going everywhere. My word. And I said, no, you can do me a favor. When you see him and you tell him how much you love him, will you right after that tell him, I really love him too? I remember the first time I said that to somebody, it was my grandmother. And she said she would do it, and she died. And I thought, wow, I had an audience before Jesus. And I thought then after that, you stupid idiot, Jerry, you can have an audience before him any, mo any minute you want to. <laughs> He's with us. But nevertheless, we have this assurance that if we believe, we have eternal life. And that should have not just effect on our hope to come, but it should shape the way that we look at life even now. And I want to see if I can develop that a little bit as we consider the love that assures us. Let's look at these two texts separately. First, 1 John 4, 18 and 19. We love because he first loved us, the text said. I, I, I like C.S. Lewis's writings, but I don't want you to think that I can't think critically about them. I disagree with him on a major issue. And, and it's this. In the mere Christianity, he said he thought pride was the great sin. He's not the only one who said it. St. Augustine said it also. So if I disagree with St. Augustine and C.S. Lewis, I'm probably wrong. Okay? But bear with me and see if I can make my case. When they talked about pride being the, the great sin, they're talking about it as if it's the axiomatic sin around which all other sins constellate or the main spring from which all other sins are generated. I'm not doubting the fact that other sins could be generated from pride. But is it really the great sin? If they would have described it by saying pride was the great sin, like the apex of a pyramid is the greatest point of the pyramid, I probably could have signed on. But the apex of a pyramid has things beneath it that are far more substantive until you get to the base. So let's look at it. I'm not talking about pride of a job well done or pride you take when your child or grandchild draws a picture and you put it with the refrigerator magnet up on the refrigerator. I'm talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself in pretense, makes itself look better than it really is. What precedes that? I don't know how it is with you, 
But if I ever find myself falling into that vortex, I've usually observed it's insecurity or fear that precedes it. If you knew me like I was, maybe you'd reject me. So I try to make myself look a little bit better than I am. If that's true, then the Bible gives us a strong suggestion what might be at the base of that pyramid, what might really be the great sin, what precedes fear. And the text says perfect love casts out fear. Then we can expect that imperfect love breeds anxiety. You and I have never been loved perfectly by another human being. You know what makes me think that that's so in my life? Because I'm pretty sure I've never loved another person perfectly. There's only one person who could love us perfectly, and he never misses. The rest of us are just making rough approximations in these areas. But I think that the great sin is to live in neglect or in rejection of the love of God. And I, I think, too, it's confirmed by the fact when Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing I can do with my life? What's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. And pride estranges me from the love of God and estranges me from others. There's a, there's a, a way I think I can depict this. I was on an airplane um, on a long flight, and I was watching a movie. And I hate to um, and, uh, talk about a movie that you saw on a plane because you don't know how much it might have been sanitized for the plane. And you suggest it to somebody, and you go, oh, my word, what was Jerry saying? But this particular film, as it got to the very end, I started bawling on the airplane. It's not real common for me. And the Myers-Briggs, I'm a high T. You studied the Myers-Briggs, you got all that training in it. I'm a T. I live in my head. I'm not supposed to be weeping on an airplane. But I'm going to tell you about this movie, because C.S. Lewis said, don't think critically about a book till after you've read it. We could apply that to films. Don't think critically about the film till after you've seen it. Then go back and say, why was I so moved in that section? And begin to dissect what was going on in your heart and in your soul. The movie I have in mind is The Notebook. Always I get this reaction. People start chuckling, you know, because it's a chick flick, right? And I'm not supposed to watch chick flicks. I want you to know I'm secure enough in my uh, manhood that I can watch a chick flick and I'll be okay. But if you'll remember the movie, it starts out with James Garner, an old man, going to a memory care unit, and he starts to read a story to the late, this lady, and the orderly says, it's okay, he comes and reads stories here every day, and the impression that's made is that this old man in his retirement goes to the rest home to read stories, the old folks each day. And the whole movie is present time while he's reading the story to this old lady played by Gina Rollins. And then also past time for the events of the story. And, and, and the past time is set in a town not too far from Charleston, South Carolina. It's a small town on a lake. There's a young boy who lives in that town. And there's a young girl who comes with her family to vacation there for the summer. Clearly, there is much to count against any relationship ever working out between these two. He's from poverty, where they're eking out a living. They're living close to the bone. She comes from great wealth, wealth enough that the parents could leave town and go live on a lake for the summer. He, he has a high school education. He even likes reading the poetry of Walt Whitman. 
but she has the best education her parents' money can buy. Her family's together, but extremely pretentious. And this boy, the father's in the picture. There's no mother, and we don't know what happened to her. Did she die? Did she abandon the family? I don't know. But they come from such different worlds. What are the possibility these two could ever get together? But they do. And a summer romance breaks out. The parents find out about it, and they are furious. And they've got to get their girl out of that town because they've got plans for their daughter. And while they're leaving town, the boy's running after the car, weeping, saying to her, I'll write to you every day, I'll write to you every day. The girl's crying, but the mother hears that. And so every day, she's at the mailbox taking the letters before the girl could ever see it. And like so many other things that count against this relationship ever working, these events occur. Then World War II breaks out. And now circumstance and geography separates them further. And it's at this point in the movie the director tips his hand and you realize it's this old man coming every day to read this story to his wife. The relationship worked out. They married. But she has dementia. The scene that got me was they're sitting in the hospital having dinner. There's actually a tablecloth on the table. There's a rose and a bud vase and a candle burning and a record player that is playing all the music that had informed so much of their relationship. And it is screaming out to this woman, the entire environment, the love of this man for her. And he finishes the story that he's been reading all day. And the woman says, that's the most beautiful love story I have ever heard in my life. And it sounds so familiar. And all of a sudden, cognition washes across her face. And she says, it's, it's our story, isn't it? He said, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was only five minutes. She says, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. And as the music is playing, she says, hold me. Can we dance? And they begin dancing across that hospital floor. And as quickly as she came into cognition, she falls out of cognition, finds herself in the arms of a stranger, begins screaming, and the orderly has to come in and sedate her. And James Garner's character is leaning against the wall, biting his knuckle, and just weeping and weeping. And that's when I lost it. And I went back and reflected on it. Why? Why was that so moving to me? And it dawned on me, it's all of our story, people. We're in this incredible love relationship that has so many things counting against it. And yet constantly we're being told how much we are loved, incredibly loved. And we live most of our life in dementia. There come those moments of cognition. And they're really sweet. And then some little inconvenience happens and we fall back into our dementia again. And when I saw James Garner's character biting his knuckles, weeping, I thought, that's a window into the very character and nature of God who loves us so deeply. And I think that this love, if we can understand it better and better every day, will never, we'll never plumb the depths of it, this eternal love. But if we can understand it better and better, and we have more and more lengthy times of cognition, I think it is to our own spiritual health 
So in light of that, um, I think that the great sin is to live in neglect of God's love. The other things constellate around that. And I also think um, that this love assures us, but if you're like me, maybe sometimes you tend to drift. Maybe cognition, incognition isn't far away. How can we protect ourselves? It might be good for us to think about it for a minute. I, I don't know about you, but I have these evaluative questions I ask myself in my quiet time each day. I have four questions. I'm going to share them with you, and I don't expect you have to use them. These are evaluating where I have a tendency maybe to drift, and if you want to use them, that's great. But maybe you have your own areas. Now, sometimes I'll talk to students about this, and they'll say, oh, if you got four, I'm going to get 404. And I said, no, you should get to a therapist and figure out why you're so obsessive-compulsive. All of us need a few. We don't need a whole lot, but we need a few that will keep us honest. So first question, making sure that we stay in cognition. First question I have, I'm going to set in context. I, I remember when I was young, growing up, I lived a, a, a pretty mischievous life. I'd had a girlfriend, and she dumped me for another guy. And that guy took advantage of her. I was not a Christian. So I said to myself, it's wrong when men do this to women. And even though I had a lot of plenty other troubles and problems, I never colored outside the lines when it came to women. But I was like any horny 20-year-old guy. I was looking forward to the day when I might get married. I was a fairly new Christian. And so I started imagining a lot of times what that would be like. Did any of you ever do that before you were married, wondering what it would be like? I did. Huh? There you go. So here's the way I would imagine it. I would meet the woman, and we would date. And naturally, she would say, oh, I always like to be around you all the time, Jerry. That's how I imagined it anyway. <laughs> and the day would come when, when, when I would ask her if she would be willing to be my wife. And I just imagined she'd say, you're the guy I've been dreaming for all my life. I'd go talk to her folks. Is it okay if I marry your daughter? And they'd say, are you kidding? We can't think of a better person for a wife. That's the way I imagined it, at least. <laughs> Didn't quite go that way. And then I imagined we would go through those days of engagement, planning for a marriage together, and then I imagined the day would come where I'd be standing up in front with my brothers, my brother-in-law, my best friends, and I would see my bride coming down the aisle with her father. The pastor would say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the dad would say, her mother and I do. He would have us exchange our vows. He'd give a homily. He'd pronounce us husband and wife. And always in my imagination, when I would imagine this, it would go the same way at the end. After he pronounced his husband and wife, we'd turn and face those people that came there to witness this great event, and I'd be going out the aisle, and always in my imagination, halfway out the aisle, Jesus would come back. <laughs> and it used to bum me out. And I couldn't get past that spot. And it was in that context that I came up with my first question. If Jesus came back today, would I be disappointed? If Jesus came back today, would I be disappointed? 
Let's say you ask yourself that question. Something comes up on the radar screen of your mind. That doesn't mean you're an unspiritual person. You ask the question to try and find those places out that might cause you to drift or move into dementia in your love for God. The questions were right. Don't be surprised if something comes up. This is what you need to work on. Second question is the flip side of the first one. The second question for me is, can I say thank you to God in the midst of my circumstances? I know there's some circumstances that are pretty bad. I'm not saying you have to say thank you to God for those circumstances, but thank you to God in the midst of them. In other words, you're saying, Lord, things are pretty bad, but if I have you, I'm going to make it. Lord, I say thank you, because nothing can take you away from me. You promised you'd never leave me nor forsake me. Second question, can I say thank you? And if you have trouble saying thank you, that's okay. You ask the question to be honest in your walk with God, and if something comes up on the radar screen, don't beat yourself up. That's an area where you need to work so you don't drift. Third question, and this comes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. It says, how can I say I love God whom I haven't seen if I don't love my brother whom I have seen? And so that, that question is basically, are you out of sorts with anybody? Is there somebody you have a broken relationship with? And I'm not talking about the person who's irreconcilable to you. I'm talking about the relationship where you've been irreconcilable to somebody else and you have all the cards in your hand and you're not doing anything about it. Your love for God is in jeopardy. Your heart may begin to sour. And a heart that sours can sour about a lot of other things as well. Now, I, I, I talk about this one because I had a real struggle in my life. Uh, my younger brother, Jimmy, was an incredible athlete. I started for three years in college in football. I was an okay athlete, but I had to work out harder than everybody else because I wasn't the natural athlete that Jimmy was. When Jim, they used to have the North-South Shrine game at the Coliseum every year for the best high school athletes in, in, in California. He was the only, there were only two guys that went both ways, but he led the team in tackles on defense and he scored a touchdown on offense. And I hated him. <laughs> I was in high school, I was a pole vaulter. You really have to take that by faith now. And, and, and I remember training really hard. And, and, and my junior year, I was second in conference in pole vault. I tied a guy from, from uh, Southgate High School, if you know where that is in L.A. And, and, and this other guy and I were teasing each other throughout that next year who would be the conference champ. That was the year Jimmy came to high school. And the, <laughs> the local paper put the story this way. Jim Root of Huntington Park High School takes first place in the pole vault. Steve Timms of Southgate High School takes second. Jim's brother, I didn't even have my own identity. Jim's brother, Ferry Root, they misspelled my name, takes third. I just seethe, I seethe. So Jimmy ends up being one vote away from City Player of the Year for all of LA City, and he's first team all city, and he's recruited every weekend, going to different uh, colleges, flying across America, you know. And I said to him, hey, Jimmy, why don't you come to Whittier College and we'll play football together? And he looked at me and he said to me, I don't want to go to Whittier because you're there. I was a new Christian 
maybe by 18 months by that time. And I realized that what he said was true. I had not done well. I need to go back and ask his forgiveness. And I remember going back and asking his forgiveness. He, he went on to a Division I program, and he started both ways. He was a brilliant athlete, and I called him, and I said, Jimmy, not making any excuses, I've been a horrible big brother to you. I've been jealous of you. I've been bitter towards you. I want to know if you'll forgive me. Don't ever ask for forgiveness by saying, uh, I want you to know if I've done anything wrong, please forgive me. That's a person who wants the benefits of forgiveness but isn't willing to own anything. And so I said, would you forgive me? And he didn't hem and haw and say, oh, don't worry about it. He says, yeah, I'll forgive you. It's been tough. That next year, there were many other circumstances involved in it. He transferred into Whittier College. In my senior year for one of the games, we were co-captains for the game. And I wish I could say, and then we rode off into the sunset and everything was perfect. <laughs> but you'd know that wouldn't be true. Years of bad habit take time to break. But I started focusing on it. And I remember the day one time when Jimmy, years later, called me up and he says, Jerry, I, I think I'm loving Jesus now. And he's had his struggles. I said, why is that, Jimmy? He said, because you were willing to work on the relationship. Question you have to ask. Are you out of sorts with somebody? And then you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do about it? Because my love for Jesus is somehow affected by this. Last question for me is I imagine me being where Peter was when Jesus came to him in John 21 and said, Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agapao. The noun form is agape. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, Lord, I like you a lot. I phileo you. And it's amazing to me that Jesus didn't say to Peter, Peter, go take a hike. Get your act together. When you get your act together and you can love me with a love that's commensurate with my love for you, you can come be my disciple. He doesn't say that, does he? The love that assures says to Peter, feed my sheep. I accept you at the level of love you could give at this moment. Says the second time to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, I like you a lot. Jesus says, Peter, tend my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you like me a lot? He uses Peter's word. Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I like you a lot. He says, feed my sheep. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I don't know if I can even rise to the high level of Peter's Lord. I like you a lot. Maybe sometimes I get to the place Lord, I want to love you. Or Lord, I want to want to love you. But he takes those honest prayers and he bumps them up. So the Lord, I want to want to love you becomes a Lord, I want to love you. Lord, I want to love you maybe becomes a Lord, I like you a lot. And then sometimes there are those soaring moments where you catch yourself saying, Oh, Lord, I love you. Those are my four questions. You can use them if you want, or maybe they're not relevant to you. But I do think you should have some evaluative questions to make sure you're not drifting. Why? Because this is the most important thing. Now, in light of that, I want to say, too, that I want to get into some of these assurance verses in, in chapter 5, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit more about this. This kind of love, I think, is unique to Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, if you believe 
in Christianity, you do not have to believe everything about the other religions is necessarily false. But if you do believe in Christianity, you have to believe those places where Christianity and the other religions differ. Christianity is true and they're not. And I want to talk about that so that I can underscore the love of God in contrast with other religions. And as I do this, <coughs> excuse me, as I do this, Lewis also says, if you're a Christian, there are a lot of things in the other religions that we could affirm. For example, all people of any religion have more in, com com um, in uh, relationship with each other than any of us would have with a materialist who doesn't believe in the supernatural whatsoever. But there are some things that we would have in common with the other religion beyond that. And I'll give you some examples. I want to talk about three religious experiences, three people I talked to who are of other religions. And when they saw the contrast between what they believed and this idea of God's assuring love, they were overwhelmed. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like these anecdotal stories I'm telling you are definitive of all people in those religious groups. Uh, we know that different religions have complexity to them. We know it because we're Christians. And we know among Christians there are Coptic Christians, Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians. Among the Catholics there are Dominicans, Franciscans. There are Jesuits and so on. And we know among the Protestants. I mean, how many of you are Presbyterian in here? How many of you are a Baptist? How many of you are a Methodist? How many of you come from community churches or Bible churches? How many of you are Lutherans? How many of you are, boy, you guys aren't anything. <laughs> huh? Assemblies of God. Nazarene. Huh? EV free. Okay. Well, anyway, we know there's complexity, right? And so I'm telling you these stories, not trying to simplify these other positions. But nevertheless, I remember one time I was coming back. I, when I was teaching at Wheaton College for 25 years. And a lot of times I, I, my classes were Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so I would leave after Monday classes, and I would get on a plane, I'd go someplace, give a lecture at that place that night. I had no classes Tuesday, Thursday, so Tuesdays I'd be at that university giving some lectures, and then I'd get on a plane and come back. Sometimes I'd do the red-eye special and come back early in the morning. And Wheaton College had a limo system for press, uh, uh, profs who were doing this sort of thing, so we'd be picked up and brought back. And it was early morning, red-eye special, and this guy's going to drive me to Wheaton College. And the limo guy says, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What do you do there? I said, I'm a professor. He said, what are you a professor of? I said, well, my degree is in philosophy of religion. He said, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. How about you? He says, I'm a Muslim. I get in the car. First thing he says when, he get, when we get in the car, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I said, well... I defer to you when it comes to Islam. I've read a lot of the Quran. I haven't read it all. But I've read my Bible. I seem to know that okay. So, so I can tell you a few things that I know, and maybe it'll be helpful to you. I said, first off, your Quran says you don't believe in a God of Trinity. For us Christians, this is really important. So I'm asked, his name was Hafiz Muhammad. I'm asking Hafiz some questions. For example, question number one. Do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? And, you know, he says, what do you mean by contingent? I said, well, like a building like this, has it always existed or did somebody build it? Is it contingent upon a builder? If it's contingent on a builder, since it's made of wood, is it contingent upon a lumberjack who cut down the lumber and a miller who milled the lumber to its proper size and, and, and a plan 
that's given for this too and the purpose for which it's serving now and so on. He said, oh, no, no, I believe God's non-contingent. Second question, is God a God of love? You might expect that the Muslim would say, I believe he's merciful, I believe he's good, I believe he's just, but I've had this conversation with about 200 Muslims and they always say, no, I believe he's good, I believe he's good. Next question, who's the object of his love? And they're always reduced to saying, we are, creation is. And I say to them, if God needs creation to fulfill his nature, then he's a contingent being and not a non-contingent being. Relational attributes in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship must be necessary in that being. Christians don't believe one God, three gods. We don't believe one person, three persons. We believe one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no contradiction in that. Might be somewhat mysterious, but it's not contradictory. But these other monotheistic non-Trinitarian religions have this conflict. And Hafiz got it immediately, and he said, I'm tracking with you. He said that about 18 times in this conversation. I'm tracking with you. And I said, Hafiz, there's another difference, too. There was a philosopher of religion from Germany named Rudolf Otto. And Rudolf Otto said, there are three commonalities in all the great world religions. One, they all believe in some divine essence. They'll define it differently if they are an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a dualist, a monotheist, or a monotheistic trinitarian. But they always believe in some transcendent other. Otto calls it the numinous. It inspires awe and wonder. Two, he goes, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you. Second thing I said to Hafiz, all the great religions of the world believe in a divine moral code that they fail to keep. He says, I'm tracking with you. And I said, third, they all believe that the divine essence is a custodian of the moral code, and if we fail to keep the moral code, it's an offense against the divine essence. And he said, I'm tracking with you. He said, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in life after death. I believe in hell, and I don't want to go there. And then he said, I'm trying to do as well as I can and be as good as I can. And I said, Hafiz, how's that working for you? And he said, I live in fear. What did he not know? The perfect love that casts out fear. And so I explained the difference between Christianity and Islam is it rests in the love of this triune God for whom love is non-contingent and always available. And I explained the gospel to him, and he said to me, that's the most comforting thought I have ever had. And I said, Hafiz, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And he prayed with me right in that limo. And uh, I wanted to follow up. So I said, do you have a Bible? He says, no. I said, let me get you a Bible. He says, no, I'm in the car all the time. Bring me a Bible on CD. I brought him two different versions. Anyway, nevertheless, there's an example of somebody who's looking for the love that we know about. I'll give you another example. I used to teach at a college in uh, Illinois before I taught at, at Wheaton College called College of DuPage. It's the largest community college in America. I was walking through the cafeteria one day, and I saw this woman, and she's sitting at a table, and she's reading a book. And I looked at the book. I go, oh, my heavens. 
what, what, as I'm walking by, what, what is that writing? I mean, I, I know what Greek looks like. I know what Hebrew looks like. I know what Latin looks like. I can usually spot if something's German or Polish. I mean, I don't know those languages, but you can see this was nothing. It looked like somebody put ink on chicken's feet and let them run all over the page. And this woman's reading it. And I stopped and I said, please forgive me for interrupting you. I'm curious as all get out. What, what is that book? She says, it's Sanskrit. And it's a Hindu devotional. And I'm a Hindu. And I said, do you mind if I ask you some questions about your belief? She said, no, no, that's fine. Sit down. I sat down. I said, well, for example, what do you believe happens to you after you die? And she said, well, we're different than you guys. We, we, we uh, cremate our dead. I said, no, 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 I'm not asking you how you dispose of human remains. What do you believe happens to you when you die? And she said, well, we believe in millions of gods, millions. I said, millions? She said, millions of gods. And they're watching everything we do and everything we say. And if we do well, we'll come back at a higher state. We'll come back as whatever. But if we do poorly, we'll come back, these were her words, something like a dog or a cat. I'm not sure all Hindus believe this, but at least this woman did at that moment. And I said to her, so you believe in millions of gods? She said, yeah, and they're watching everything you do and say, and you're going to be in trouble at the time of your death by virtue of what you've accumulated over your life? She said, yeah. I said, that is scary. She said, we live in fear. I said, you don't have to be afraid. She said, I know. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I go, how did you know that? She said, I saw the passion of the Christ. There's just hints everywhere. Remember our first morning where I said the story's everywhere if we look at it. I have a third story I'm going to tell you, but I'm, I'm not. I'm going to skip it. I want to get to chapter 5. In chapter 5, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. I was in this fraternity in college, and we had pledges who were coming this one year, and they were coming to a rush. And I was talking to this one guy, and, and he had Catholic background. I don't know about you, but I know Catholics who have robust love for Jesus. My best friend has that background, and we have a uh, we started an FCA program at the local uh, Catholic high school. We led a lot of people to Jesus. There was a church in Santa Barbara when I pastored there called St. Raphael's. And they used to ask me, I was pastoring at a Protestant church, they used to ask, ask me to come in and do the unit for the adult confirmation um, uh, class on how to be born again. And they'd say to me, we want you to preach the gospel. We don't want you to pussyfoot around. We want you to have a show of hands of those who are praying to receive Christ. This is a Catholic church. 150 potential converts, 150 sponsors. I preached the gospel. I said, how many want to trust Christ? And there were more than 150 that raised their hand. Some of the sponsors raised their hand too. They were seeing more conversions for Christ at that church than any others. There were some other churches in, in, in town, though, that were all on a works treadmill. 
and they were living in fear because all works approaches, you never know if you've done enough. Works, works approaches produce two, maybe three kinds of people. They produce the arrogant who think they can do it, and they produce the beat up who know they can't, and maybe there's a third group who hasn't yet decided where they're going to go. Anyway, this man, this young man, I said, so uh, tell me about yourself. He says, well, I'm, I'm pretty religious. I go to church. And I said, well, where do you go to church? He said, I go to a Catholic church. And I, I don't know, is he one of the ones who really is on fire? Because I've been to Protestant churches, too, where I think there are people who are clueless. I'm sure you've been that, there, too. I don't know where he's at. I've got to ask questions. So I assume when I talk to somebody who claims to be a Christian, I'm going to assume the best, and I'm going to talk like we're on the same page. His name was Jeff. And I said, Jeff, you are? Wow, isn't it great that we can know for sure that God loves us, and he's forgiven us of our sins, and we can have eternal life? And Jeff says, you can't know that. It tells me he hasn't read the Bible, probably. I said, yeah, you can. You can know that. He says, show me. I opened up my Bible, and I took him to this passage. He that has the Son has the life. He does not have the Son, does not have the life. These have been written that you might know that you have eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And Mueller just freaked out. He ended up joining the fraternity. We had 11 weeks of pledging, and it was just terrible stuff. And, and then afterwards, we had our final night. And after the final night, when I pledged, I went home and slept for 23 hours. I go back to my house, because the active members would, would take shifts. I go back to my house, and a half hour after the pledging was over, Jeff Muller's at my house. I said, Jeff, what are you doing here? You should be home asleep. He said, I've got to talk to you. He said, that night, when you showed me that passage in 1 John 5, I just was thinking about it for two nights. I was up looking at that passage, and it dawned on me. I can have the Son. I can have the assurance of eternal life. I said, Muller, why didn't you come tell me then? He said, well, I didn't want you to think I was kissing up to you. That's what athletes are like. You know, they're just sort of goofy. I said, you could have told me. I was at this gathering of my old fraternity a few weeks back, and they asked me to come and share the gospel with them. There's 120 guys, and maybe a quarter of them were Christians. Muller was there. He's still walking with Jesus. Isn't it cool? Okay, could you give us our, our thing on the screen? I want you to see this. All right. Here's a verse in 1 Peter 2.24. When I was a new Christian, I had come from a background where I thought if I went to see the shaggy dog, I could lose any salvation I might have had. It was all works, perfect love casts out fear. I had deep, deep fear. I didn't know. My brother takes me to a campus crusade for Christ meeting. I hear the gospel clear for the first time. I respond to the gospel, but I've still got this thing I've struggled with since my childhood. There was an insurance salesman who had a college ministry there. His name was Robert Seeley. Let's honor him. And he happened to be on campus this one night, just a few days after I'd trusted Christ. And he took me to this verse. And this verse clarified things for me so well. If you're here and maybe your fellowship, you sometimes wonder, am I in or am I not, you know, and whatnot. I hope this will make it clear for you. And he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. There are three personal pronouns there that refer to the reader. Our, we, and you. 
Whenever I get a new Bible, I go first to that verse and I box them off. So if I'm sharing Christ with somebody, I can take them to this verse. I want us all to read it out loud. And when you come to the red personal pronoun, I want you to put your name in the verse. Okay? So let's all do it together. And he himself bore Jerry's sins in his body on the cross, that Jerry might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Jerry was healed. So this Robert Seeley said to me, read this, I read it, put your name in the verses, I did it, and he said, can you tell me according to that verse where your sins are right now? And I said, yeah, they're, they're on Christ's body on the cross. If your sins are on Christ's body on the cross, can they be on you? And I said, no. He said, what does that make you? I said, forgiven? He said, yeah. He said, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was dying on the cross for your sins and putting forgiveness in a trust account for you to draw on one day, how many of your sins were in the future yet to be committed? All of them, absolutely. And then he said to me, any you committed last year? Any you might commit today? Any you might commit 10 years from now? What does that make you? Forgiven. Forgiven. It's not a license to sin. It's a license to live your life in extreme gratitude of the love of God. And it says then in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And that's the love that assures. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for us. Keep us in the love of Christ. We have a tendency to drift. Help us to be responsible, to keep track of those things where we may drift and enter into some sort of spiritual dementia. And instead, I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of your great love each day of our life and that that love would affect how we live our life, never having to worry about if we mess up that somehow we've lost it, but discovering when we do mess up that the forgive forgiveness has already been taken care of. And because of that, help us never to use it as a license for sin, but help us instead to always dust ourselves off confess those sins, and get back in the game. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.